Hi, this is April Mazza. This is Christy Showman Ferrer. And this podcast is overdue. Morning, April. Hi, Christy. How are you today? Good. Are you ready to uh, podcast with me? I am. I am. I have a book to talk about this week. So I am still listening to audiobooks all the time. And because of your recommendation of, of looking at Odyssey books, I actually went to the Odyssey award list and looking for a new audiobook. I had gotten stuck in a couple mm-hmm. different books that just weren't working. They either were too long or the narrator didn't work for me. Or sometimes this happens, the narrator is too good and I fall asleep, <laughs> which is not a good thing if I'm actually trying to pay attention to the book. So I went to the audio Odyssey list for 2020 and I picked Song for a Whale by Lynn Kelly. And the reason I picked that one is I actually heard her speak about the book before or just as it was getting published before it was an audio book and was really struck by the, the storyline. Uh, it's about a young girl who's in middle school and she's, she's deaf and she repairs radios, which is like super fascinating to listen to about how she repairs radios. But she learns about the whale that sings at 52 hertz. Have you heard about that whale? I mean, I know you have because I told you about it because I'm like so fascinated, fascinated by this, this whale. Yeah, I had not heard of it until you told me. Yeah, so there's this blue whale out in the Pacific Ocean that sings at a different hurt, sings at a different frequency than all the other whales out there. And there are a lot of theories about why that is. Is it because the whale is a different species slightly? Maybe it's a because the the hurt the frequency is between blue whales and fin whales. And so that's a possibility. They think maybe there's the whale has a deformity of some sort that keep prevents it from singing at a lower frequency. But whatever the reason, they've been able to track this whale over a decade or more wow. and know a lot about it, except why it sings. And it seems to be the only whale that does sing at that frequency. So the main character of the book, Iris, becomes fascinated with this whale, partly because she she too feels completely alone. She's the only deaf student at her school. And she thinks that um, that she has, or she's kind of building a connection with this whale, even though they live thousands of miles apart. And she's able to, um, she creates a song for the whale and wants to send it to the whale. And so that kind of like sets off this adventure. And it is such a lovely audiobook. I love listening to it. I, I, I love the narrator. Um, the, the story is super compelling. I'm learning a ton. And I also really appreciate the representation of, um, a deaf child in the story Mm -hmm. and deaf culture. Um, being deaf definitely is a challenge, a communication challenge in her life at times, but it's not an issue. It's not a problem. She doesn't Mm -hmm. want to change herself. She is who she is. She is proud of it. Her grandparents both deaf and sign is a big part of the story. And Lynn Kelly, the author, was an ASL interpreter for many years. And so she comes to the story with a a wealth of of understanding about the culture. Although I will say that she is not deaf herself. And so there, um, you know, if you're looking for own voices, stories about deaf culture, this is not it, but there are other amazing um, stories in that that realm. So I just, am really looking forward to listening every single day. I'm almost done. Um, I've done more research about the whale and I now also want to go like learn as much as I can and to listen to its song. And so it just makes me smile. 
And I think that's one of the best things about a good book, right? Absolutely. That's so interesting too. And my big question is, um, does the audio play any of the whale sounds? It has not. Oh, okay. No, no. So you I have to go look them up because yeah, I always find yeah. that really interesting too. That... So the, I don't know what the, um, the specific thinking was or that the reasoning why, but actually the, in the story, the whale has a different frequency and a different name than the real whale. So in the story, they call it um, blue 55. The actual whale is 52 blue. So slightly different frequency. And I don't know if that's, I don't know, is it like a rights issue or something? I'd be very curious to find out why. Yeah. Uh, So and actually has its own license. Right, right. (laughs) And like the music is copywritten, um, whale music. So, but there, um, maybe I'll see if I can find a royalty free sound to play in the episode. (laughs) Oh yeah, that'd be fun. I read um, a graphic novel called Captain America Truth, and it's by Robert Morales. And you're giggling, but here, <laughs> here's the reason why. Um, so my husband and I are watching The Falcon and the Winter Soldier on Disney Plus. And as a side note, I keep messing up that title. It's now become a joke to just mess it up <laughs> because I'm more of like a like WandaVision, right? That it's one word, it's mm-hmm. easy to say. And I just and I'm not, even though we love these TV shows and movies of the Marvel universe, I'm not really like well versed in it. So I'm, I was calling it like the Falconer and the Soldier the winter falcon like <laughs> so now now every friday when it's on we just make up m- more and more absurd names using the same words but anyway after each episode we watch these youtube videos like easter egg videos and our favorite is from one called screen crush and again this helps us because there's like so much backstory there's all this canon and but there's also like relevance to like things in history. So I love watching these videos. It gives it like more context, makes the episodes actually more interesting. And in the last one, they brought up this book, Captain America Truth, because a character in the show, Isaiah Bradley, is a main character of this comic. And it just made me really curious. So I wanted to get it from the library because it's uh, Isaiah Bradley is a, a Black soldier. And he also had the, the serum that Steve Rogers had. And I'd never heard of this and I wasn't even sure, like, is this really part of the Marvel universe? And because mm-hmm. sometimes they have characters and books, right? What is storylines that are, yeah, exactly. And, and so I just was really curious about it and you were giggling, but I was, <laughs> I, Only because I was so because, surprised. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> I don't usually go for this kind of comic or graphic novel I love graphic novels I love like superhero genre but it's usually like movies and tv so like we watch the boys on Amazon we like x-men we love marvel stuff but I don't go for comics like this unless it's got a like kind of a different take on it so like I did read there were some volumes of black panther that were written by Ta-Nehisi Coates um, there's one, I read at least one by Roxanne Gay. That was my favorite because it was really woman-centered. Yeah. And did and you read Shuri? I haven't read that one, but see, now I will <laughs> because I love that character. There's also like a superhero called Faith, who's a fat woman and I'm a fat woman. I've read that one. So yeah, I love Faith. 
and you know and you hardly ever see like a, a woman of size in comics like they're always you know the size is in their bust so <laughs> or their butt which is fine too but I, I love that character and so like that's interesting to me and so I thought this would be interesting to me and it was because it's you know, it's not just like the traditional superhero. So it totally fits the bill. And as I mentioned, it's about Isaiah Bradley. He's a black soldier during World War II and he's injected with that super soldier serum along with other black men in his unit, unbeknownst to them, you know, against their will. So it's also bringing up our history in America, um, the Tuskegee experiments, but also I learned from this book about experiments done on U.S. soldiers um, who were then denied medical benefits later from the U.S. And it's just insane to read about that stuff. But this is what I liked about the story because it's really gritty and dark. Um, There's some humor, it is a comic, but it's really about drawing these connections with history, but then also today but it's the today of 2009. So I was really surprised to, to, this was the hardcover, which is volumes one through seven was published in 2009. And you know me, I'm a total sucker for back matter. (laughs) So this (laughs) book has, yeah, this is, in this book, it's an appendix from the author who I mentioned, uh, Robert Morales. I also learned he has since passed away, but it goes through all the connections you know, to the real world, to history and where he got inspiration or where he learned things. And wow, he read so much, you know, he just, he consulted so many books. It's unbelievable for this project, Um, other films and things like that. It's really, really impressive. And the last thing I want to say about it is mentioning the artwork because it is a, it is a comic. So that's filled with art. Um, and when I looked up reviews, because I wanted to see what other people thought of this story, especially because it, uh, because of the race issue, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I read some things where people were like, there's no black Captain America, you know, and then there are other oh people gosh. that are like, yes, there is. It's, it's actually, it is part of the canon that the editors decided to make it a, a real part of the story. And that's why you do see it in the, the TV show, mm-hmm. um, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And so anyway, I, I also was just intrigued by the controversy over the artwork because people either really liked it or really hated it. And part of that is because it is a very cartoony style. It's very like Looney Tunes-ish and actually something I think you would see for that time period. Because I was going to ask it, does it like reminiscent of like the 40s and 50s mm-hmm. comics? Okay. Yes. That and, makes sense. And also like political cartoons I think of the time I refer to this this is my personal I don't know if this is a real term I call this ugly art because it's intentionally (laughs) yes it's intentionally made to be disturbing and unsettling so while it's not like my favorite art style to look at I I think that it was an interesting choice and I think they made that choice here because it's ugly and uncomfortable topics. So I, I thought it actually fit, even though like, you know, there's, it's a very violent comic too, I should say, and also not usually something that I gravitate towards, but you know, th- that's like when you really do see the ugliness, um, you know, when people are like yelling or fighting mm-hmm. and it's, it's not comical in a funny way, but comical in that, again, that cartoony yeah. way of 
of drawing well, that's it. One of the wonderful things about graphic novels is that the art, well, and, and any any work that includes visual media, but mm -hmm. that the art plays and is part of the experience and part of how it makes you feel. So I love that idea of it being intentionally uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I think if it was more stylized, I think it would detract. So some people had mentioned, and I was looking at like Goodreads <laughs> um, <laughs> kinds of comments, but you know, some people thought if you do, if it's portrayed in the style, it's disrespectful um, to the seriousness of the topic. And, and that's not how I was looking at it, but I could, I could see that. But I think mm -hmm. if it was really stylized, like a traditional superhero, to me, that would be more disrespectful. Well, so it is interesting though. Uh, yeah. I wonder about to discourse after the fact, would you be talking about it as much if it was a stylized contemporary I don't art style? So. Right. I don't think so. I think, and that's why I was sort of looking for other people's opinions, mm -hmm. um, you know, about the book in general, but specifically the artwork. Cause I think it, it's, it's very polarizing and, but that's also <laughs> true for the topic of race, you know, right. and it, and it, yeah. and it's, you can't avoid the topic in the book. That's what it's about. And it also, again, going back to the TV show that inspired this read, it, it's, that's a big part of it as well. Mm -hmm. so. Well, and it, it got you to talk about it. And I love that. And it got I, me to read it yes. too. Like I would never, <laughs> I would never read a Captain America comic. Black Panther was definitely more because I love that movie so much. So that wasn't like a big stretch for me, but it was really about the authors. Yes. Um, when I learned those two authors in particular had written episodes, uh, written volumes. I was m much more into it. Um, and there's yeah. so many entryways into graphic novels, you know, if, so if listeners, if you are new to graphic novels and you haven't read any that we can, we'd be happy to help you. You can always email us uh, at this pod is overdue at gmail.com. We didn't necessarily peg this podcast as a book recommendation source, but we both have varied reading backgrounds, True. especially when it comes to graphic novels. Well, and we have been getting feedback on, um, from our first episode on the books we mentioned so absolutely um and it's also a good segue I don't know if you want to ready to start but we did get asked about graphic yes novels. yes absolutely yes so again kind of hearkening back to our first episode I mentioned that on Facebook I put a call out for questions from friends and um connections about books and libraries in general and one of the questions that garnered the biggest discussion was about where do you shelf graphic novels and not just specifically, um, you know, in general, like space-wise in the library, but philosophically, do you, when, and, and when it comes to like graphic novel, graphic nonfiction, do you shelve those books with the graphic novels? Do you shelve them in the topic area that they're about? Mm -hmm. What do you do? Do you have an opinion? Well, I do, but I feel like listeners take this with a grain of salt because I no longer work in a library. <laughs> Um, but my general philosophy about shelving books in, you know, in your library is, you know, meet the readers where they are or where they think they're going. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. And I, I know this can, this is not a popular opinion with, um, you know, people are very strict about, uh, you know, their classification system. But I think especially in a youth room um, where you are going to have people who are not you know, 
reading at the highest level yet or or you know sort of aware of these societal things like I don't want to demean young children but young children aren't going to necessarily know or care about non you know a graphic novel that's nonfiction if what they're looking for is a comic yes and I I do think that with comics people are looking for the style they enjoy reading that kind of book and so that's where they're going to go on the other hand I do think if you have some nonfiction comics and you put them with their subject the other subject titles you might get some new readers or some renewed interest um it you know I think it can be hard too if if your community's used to going to nonfiction for you know, homework and reports, you might have an adult that says, well, you can't use that one because it's a comic. So I think it just it really depends on your own community. And luckily, I mean, as far as I know, like I said, I don't currently work in a library, but when I did, you had that leeway where you could say, you know, in my town, I know there are huge comic readers and it's just easier if I put them all together. Um, in other places, it just might be different. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And and on the, the thread, that was one of my points is that when it comes to graphic books, graphic novels, but actually I had a whole set kind of separate side conversation about why are the nonfiction ones called novels? You know, when we talk about right. graphic <laughs> novels, quote unquote, um, we're talking about the format. But I think that when we talk about nonfiction in comic form, we can call it graphic nonfiction. We can call it comic nonfiction because there is definitely a, a difference. They're not novels. Readers who are very into graphic novels and comics tend to be format fans. Mm-hmm. And then there are definitely readers who do not like the format at all. And so in this specific situation, I think format trumps content in where we put it in a library. Mm-hmm. And because people come in, they, you know, especially if I think about the, the kids in my own house, one who is, is 100% on board with graphic um, content and comics and only wants to read graphic novels and manga and comics format is where she goes. The other one doesn't care and it is not format specific. But I think if we shelved those books then in the nonfiction areas, we would lose people who would read them regularly. You know, especially I think about the the science comic series that are about particular topics. They are are, are nonfiction, primarily nonfiction. And if we shelved, you know, the polar bear one with the bear, some people may find it, but I think we'd lose out on a lot of readers who mm-hmm. are graphic readers um, and looking for them. I, in a previous job, I actually worked on kind of a, a virtual collection and I got, didn't have actual books. I, I was collection development recommendation kind of thing that I did. And I did sh- shelf with quotes um, the the graphic nonfiction in the nonfiction section but the reason I did that was because the people I was working for were adult selectors and mm-hmm. I find that a lot of them I can't necessarily you know use a huge broad brush for everybody but a lot of adults in libraries are not necessarily graphic readers. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted them to discover those books. So again, it goes to your point of like, know your community, who are your readers, who, who, what service are you trying to do? I think in a perfect world, I would love to have a graphic novel section with everything format wise, but then also have duplicates of some books in Mm -hmm. the collection. 
but you can't always do that with your right. funding, right? So maybe you could have a placeholder, like a little like shelf talker um, on the shelf or uh, one of those stick out kind of pieces that says, there's a, a book about the brain in the graphic novel collection. If you're looking for more information, you know, you can put a little like cover that. picture on it so that you're hitting people on both sides and, you know, giving them additional ways to access right. your collection. And I think if you, you know, we also have this wonderful system of using our catalogs. Yeah. To, you know, so we're mainly, I'm thinking of browsing, you know, the browsability. I do think it's good to have graphic novels all together, but you still have that resource. So if you had a child, like your child, you were talking about that loves graphic novel format, wants to read anything in it, and is also interested in, let's say, sharks, because mm. I know they are, yep, yep. <laughs> um, you know, the library staff can, you know, search for that and find specific titles. Um, but also, you know, yeah, making, making book lists, like, hey, did you know we have a bunch of nonfiction making displays, I think will help too. But it's interesting what you talked about, like, working with adults. Now it's like several years ago, but when I taught children's literature at Simmons for one semester, I had a very small class and none of them had ever read a graphic novel before. And I was shocked. I, and not like judging them. I just was so surprised. Like that's something I, like as a kid, Archie and <laughs> Casper, mm -hmm. and I loved them then partly because it was kind of all I could get. Um, <laughs> but I, I think I've just always been like a very visual person. I love art and color and, you know, looking at these different styles, but also they were fun. And, I do uh, think it still happens though. Yeah. I, I but I was just surprised that people yeah, who've never group. picked up a graphic novel. <laughs> yeah. I'm um, um, restructuring because I'm teaching children's lit this mm -hmm. summer at Salem state and it'll be my second year teaching there and I'm reformatting my entire uh, syllabus for children's lit the first time I did it by genres and I included graphic novels in every week so every time there was a, a mm -hmm. genre study there was at least one graphic novel recommended in model titles but this time I'm actually restructuring to talk about formats mm -hmm. so that we can have a whole week wow, where it's just graphic novels and I'll be interested to see what happens like if any of the students have never mm -hmm. read one before and if we have to talk about how do you read one right, right? yeah yeah, it's interesting. Well, and then you can touch on the names again, which is, yes. I think, interesting. Like, why do we call it a graphic novel? And to me, it's clearly it was just to make comic sound <laughs> better, like more, you know, like this is something that's OK to read for adults mm -hmm. and kids because, you know, a comic is seen as frivolous or not, you know, real reading and sort of that sort of my mm -hmm take on it and and not that it, I use them interchangeably I do too um yeah. and I and I think that's fine and the same with like if it's a non-fiction because it's more of, like you said a format um graphic novel is a format it's not necessarily saying it's a novel like when you would read a novel right. chapter book type book. and I think that there was something beyond in addition to the the branding of the works for general consumption but also that comic were the those in issues weekly, bi-weekly issues that were, you know, 10 pages mm -hmm. long, whereas right. graphic novel are these, are these longer story arcs. And many of them are being released without being a weekly um, series first. 
And so the, that difference between like Raina Telgemeier's smile right. and your Captain America one, right. which is you know, volumes one through seven together in the same place. So exactly. Well, and sometimes those even have like different authors, different artists. Exactly. Um, Variant covers. Collected. Yep. Yeah. Oh my gosh. We could have so many episodes just about graphic novels. <laughs> we probably should transition. So when we're back and yeah, we, we actually did walk away and come back. Um, <laughs> we are going to go into what we've learned lately. April, do you want to share what? Well, sure. It's actually related to our last episode, which was episode two, um, which I think we recorded uh, a week or so ago. And I used the term BIPOC in that episode, which is an acronym for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. And not long after, I mean, I think just a couple of days later, I was in a meeting where the term came up and several people who identify as members that would be described by that term expressed their discomfort with it. And, and I didn't realize that. So I was trying to pay attention to some of the, the issues. I mean, that wasn't our only conversation. So I knew I had to do some research on my own. Really just a few days after that, the Anti-Racist Education Now community, which is on Facebook, and I, I um, liked their page and I see their posts. So, and that's a recommendation for anyone who um, is interested in that kind of education for themselves. But they posted on their Facebook an opinion article um, about the term BIPOC. And so I read that and I was following the comments on the post and I was thinking, you know, I never, I don't really like the term myself. I, mm-hmm. It feels odd to say and explain and, but I was using it because I felt like that's the word that we should use or the term I should and say, it's, it's not a word. And it felt, I know, I know for me, it felt better than saying not white because then that's defining something by right. what they're not. And that's not okay either. Exactly. And I just hadn't taken the time to explore like sort of why, why until it was brought up in that conversation. And really the problem is that our language is, it is so white centered, right? So you're Mm -hmm. like (laughs) non-white or even using terms like diversity can be really othering. So if you and I, we are both white, you know, we might say to each other, like, we need to see more diversity with the speakers that we choose for this event or you know I'm often looking at like the artwork and picture books and thinking like I'd like to see more diversity of people in this book Mm -hmm. but when you're using terms like that and it's you know a a bigger group or audience where people are considered the diversity that just feels really wrong to me it's like talking about someone while they're in the room and not really being respectful you know so anyway I I you know, between the, that conversation and the article, I was just thinking about these terms we use as allies. So we're trying to be supportive and we're trying to, you know, do the right thing, but they can come off as sort of othering or alienating. And in this article, which I'll link to in the show notes for people who want to read it, they talk about just being more direct. So, you know, if you're trying to talk about the black community, you would say black people or indigenous or Asian. And I think that does work 
most of the time. And even for other identities, you know, that we might be thinking of that we're, again, trying, we're describing because we want to be inclusive or, you know, consider these different groups that are not white. So uh, the, one of the problems though with BIPOC, besides it being kind of confusing and having to like explain the acronym, um, according to this article, it said, or it's an opinion piece, but it's an article (laughs) to me, but it says that um, BIPOC sets us up, sets up an us versus them binary. The acronym for Black and Indigenous shifts Asian Pacific Islander Americans and Latino Americans, quote, over there, end quote, reinforcing the idea of interracial conflict rather than interracial solidarity. And I think it's good to like, you know, if you're interested in this or this is new for you, definitely read this because it does talk about how, you know, Indigenous issues, you know, need to be part of our larger conversation and the Black experience is different from other people of color. But, you know, that really struck me of this sort of, it's like a hierarchy, like saying these groups are separate, but the rest are exactly, yeah. yeah. And then of course it doesn't take into consideration, you know, other communities that have been historically oppressed. So like you know, people with disabilities or people in the LGBTQ mm-hmm. plus communities. And, you know, something that had also come up in this meeting, again, because we were trying to describe a space that was, you know, welcoming to all and inclusive to all and really wanting to spell that out. But words like minorities or underserved, even diverse, as I mentioned, have problems of their own or just may not even be accurate like sometimes my problem with the word underserved is well maybe you're in a community that is well served but you're still part of one of these groups that right has had you know harm and continues to have harm done to them that are oppressed basically you know historically and presently so all this to say, what I learned, I didn't learn a new word. <laughs> I didn't learn I, a new good term. <laughs> I don't think this is a solution for the for it completely, but I took a class on anti-racist parenting in mm. back in July. And it was put on by Tiffany Jewell, who is the author of this book is anti-racist, mm-hmm. and Britt Hawthorne, who is a Montessori educator. And one of the, the the term that they used was people of the global majority. Yes, that came up in the in the comments of the anti-racist education now post. So, yeah. so people had mentioned that in the, the meeting I was in the whole term, historically oppressed people mm-hmm. or communities came up. So I think, you know, we can, we can maybe get there. I think, again, what's important is that the, the people who are identified as parts of those communities uh, as people in those communities have a voice and I, yes. I do believe, and their voice isn't homogenous right, right. and that I do one believe, group of people uh, may like one term and exactly people may like something different and that's yeah. okay this article did say that BIPOC it did come up I think in the 90s but it was it's new for me recently and that it was created by people of color or termed you know however you want to phrase that but again it makes some people cringe Mm-hmm. And if they're part of that group, then I don't want to use that word. Right. And it just was interesting to me because I just used it. <laughs> and then like all these sort of other things came up about it. I was like, oh, this is so, this is so interesting because I was just thinking about this. It's like when you see, you know, something for the first time and then you just keep seeing it over Just and over. noticing it. <laughs> the, yeah. I think the best so, thing to 
keep them not the best, but a thing to keep in mind is that doing anti-racist work and learning about it means that you're always learning. There's always change and shifting and you have to be humble enough to accept that learning experience and that, and to know that you're never going to be perfect. Right. And there's no perfect word. And that, right. that was another thing that came up in this meeting and there probably won't ever be one and that language changes. And so to me, this is relevant here because not only do we talk about you and I talk about this a lot in our work, but just as a librarian in general, like interest in language and words right. and, um, and talking about books and creators right. and, and mm-hmm. book lists and yeah yeah it all it all comes together and I think it's really important too to just again recognize that like I don't I didn't feel badly about using the term that's not really the point and I don't want other people to feel badly about it it just was new to me like that maybe this isn't the best one or the one I want to use and a good reminder too to be as specific as possible when you can. Yeah, if you're trying to be more global, people of the global majority would be a great term to use instead. What about what about you? What have you learned lately? <laughs> My learning feels a bit trivial compared in no, comparison. It's not, uh, no such thing. Well, trivial. My learning is in a in is a shift, uh, and it is all about hex bugs. Which you'll appreciate. Um, So April and Shelly Kazada from the Mass Board of Library Commissioners and Lori Collins, who is a librarian in Ipswich, are teaching a series of workshops on school readiness uh, based on a a large national project. And I get to tag along. I don't have to do really any of the work, which is nice for once. Um, I just get to help. I get to help and do tech support and play. And so the thing that I got to play with yesterday and learn about were hex bugs. And I've experienced them before. I bought some for a, a birthday party for a friend of my older child and I knew about them, but never really experienced them. And watching everybody yesterday create their hex bug mazes out of cardboard boxes and straws and toys and all these things, I just had this huge aha moment about how much fun it could be to do that with my own kids. And so I, I do have a hex bug as part of this project. Thank you, April. And I don't know if it's, we can hear it on. We can hear, oh, I hear oh, it. We can hear it. <laughs> um, it basically just vibrates. And then it has these little rubber feet. And so it moves around, it bumps into things. And I am going to play with this on school vacation week with my kids. And I'm very excited. I think I might buy a couple more so we can have hex bug races and battles yes and you can build things so one of our participants yesterday and that was really fun sent a picture of her maze later and her cat was in the picture lucy and lucy um apparently enjoyed the hex bug as well and what's funny is when i first got mine i also you know set it down for my cat and he he was intrigued by it while it was vibrating and moving around but he didn't really go near it and as soon as I turned it off he was all over that thing like dragging it around and trying to carry it in his mouth and it was pretty hilarious I have not yet introduced either of my pets to the hex bug yeah I heard the dog might eat it oh yeah no I can't let the dog get near it he he'll destroy it but I have watched a number of YouTube and Instagram videos of other people's animals yeah. interacting with the hex bugs, and those well, are highly entertaining. And apparently, they make a hex bug cat toy. So oh, there you go. Goodness. Okay. Good to know. 
Well, speaking of, I would love one of those. Uh, I don't have one, a specific one for my cat, but there's so many other things that I, that I do love playing around with, but I wanted to see if you want to go first for what sure. we love. Loving it. Yes. So I thought I, I actually, for this section, always have so many things um, that I could share. It's hard to narrow it down to one, but this week, what I'm narrowing down to is Working Moms, the show on Netflix. Oh, I don't know. It is, um, cr- it was created by Catherine Reitman, who is Ivan Reitman's daughter hmm. and um, the sister to Jason. And uh, she uh, stars in it, writes it, directs it. Uh, and it is a Canadian sitcom. And uh, I think there are about three seasons out now set in Toronto. And it follows a group of women who are all in a mom group. And they're all the, in the first episode, they're all just about going back to maternity leave from maternity leave after having babies. And so on that front, just the, how difficult it is to, and how funny and embarrassing and humiliating it can be to be a new mom back in the work world. Um, I definitely connected, but I, I've listened to a couple of interviews with Catherine Reitman since, and one of the things that she talks about is how it's about identity crisis. It's not just about being a mom, being you know new mom or or mom in the working world, but rather finding out that who you were is not the same person anymore. And how do you manage that, especially when you're doing it, you know, while trying to pump in a bathroom? If that's what also what's happening. But one of the the things that has made me laugh the most about it all are the little nods to other pop culture. So, Mm. um, you know, there's a scene where um, Catherine Reitman's character is wearing a t-shirt from one of her dad's films and Mm. uh, Dan Aykroyd plays her dad in it. (laughs) So it's really been highly entertaining. And I think my husband also loves it too. Uh, We've watched probably more episodes than we should have in like two or three days. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so Working Moms on Netflix, and um, I have to give a shout out to the Working Moms that I know who recommended it to me. Hello, Hive, and Aww, thank you awesome. for all the recommendations. That's why we do this part, um, because you know we all need to have something fun to watch or do or read. So mine's a do, actually. Do. Yeah. <laughs> so when you were little, do you remember um, those potholder looms? <gasps> yes. Okay. I was, I always had one, right? I always, there was always one somewhere. Someone had one. We always had one. Sometimes we had the loops. A lot of times not. Well, here's the thing. I like playing with them, but I had no idea what to do with it to get it off the loom. (laughs) And I am a a middle-aged woman, so we didn't have the internet. And I guess I didn't really think about, you know, who to ask or go to my library and get a book. So, you know, lost, lost its appeal right away. And I don't know, maybe it's because of the pandemic. I <laughs> um, decided to give this a whirl and I got a kit, you know, just like the kids thing, the loom and a bunch of loops and I'm hooked. Aha, hooked too, because you do use a hook. Um, <laughs> you can use a hook to weave. And anyway, I know. And so, yeah, I it's very meditative. And I think that's part of what I like about it. It's something I could do while watching you know, TV or I've actually done it during meetings. So it takes the place of thinking putty because you can very much listen and, and weave at the same time. And I finally learned how to uh, take it off the loom. But now of course I'm like, how many pot holders does one wow. person need? I might have a solution for you. There is a young entrepreneur in my neighborhood oh, who yeah? has been selling pot holders. Oh, 
can I have funded? Give them to them? Is a, um, is a <laughs> yeah, business. Can I donate ones I make? Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> I don't want to take any business away. But yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, the other fun thing is I learned that you can create your own loops using old t-shirts. So I actually am sewing together a bunch to make a little foot rug for under my desk. So I'll post a picture of that when it's done. It's almost done. And then the most ridiculous thing of all is I bought a mini one to make coasters <laughs> because I figure coasters are um, you crack me up. maybe more <laughs> useful than potholders. But yeah, all the loops. I just want all the loops, everybody. All the loops. And, yep. Loop, <laughs> loop my way through this Loopity pandemic. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, we will have... links to everything on our show notes, which is tinyurl.com slash this pod. We hope you subscribe. We are on all the major podcasting uh, hosts these days and um, tell your friends. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this podcast is overdue with Christy and April. Bye everyone. Happy reading. Our podcast music was provided by thepodcasthost.com and Alidu, the podcast maker. Find your own free podcast music over at thepodcasthost.com slash free music. Edit that part out. (laughs) (laughs) And because you told me to, I'm not going to. No, you have to.